0: Hello, Prestige Heads. and Welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison. And perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, this episode is going to focus primarily on what's been going on in Ukraine uh, since the launch of the Russian invasion last week. So um, we're recording this at 11.45 uh, Pacific Coast time, 2.45 East Coast time on Thursday, March 3rd. So uh, just to give you a sense of where things um, stand now. So Derek, what what has happened since the invasion? Where do things stand in terms of the military? What cities have been seized? What does it look like uh, Russia is doing?
1: So, it's really a tale of, it seems like it's a tale of two conflicts. There's one going on in the south that the Russians are winning rather handily, and there's one in the north and east where they seem to be a little more bogged down. I would say the biggest news of the last couple of days is uh, that the Russians have reportedly captured uh, the city of Kherson. Uh, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. But uh, it's port city uh, in southern Ukraine situated fairly close to Crimea. It's the first really, I think, major city uh, that's fallen into Russian hands. It's strategically significant for a couple of reasons. One is that controlling Kherson gives the Russians the ability to secure freshwater supply into Crimea. Uh, There's a canal that's supposed to take Water from the Dnieper River into Crimea that the Crimean or the Ukrainians, excuse me, closed off after 2014 when Crimea was uh, seized and then eventually annexed by Russia. So the one of the one of the first things the Russians did, in fact, when they moved out of Crimea and started moving north, was to to unblock that. Canal. Uh, so Kherson is kind of uh, strategically vital in terms of protecting Crimea to some extent. Uh, it also puts them uh, on the road, if they want, to potentially moving west and attacking Odessa, uh, which is the largest port city in Ukraine by land as well as, you know, obviously they can attack it by sea now, but uh, they could move overland uh, to attack it. If there's a a sort of minimum goal here, it seems like uh, the Russian aim is to capture as much of the Ukrainian coast as possible. And elsewhere in the south, on the other, uh, sort of the eastern side of Crimea, the Russians have established a, a land bridge connecting Crimea to the Donbass. Uh, they've surrounded the another important port city, Mariupol. They seem to be bombarding that fairly frequently. It's basically besieged at this point, still technically in Ukrainian hands, but I don't imagine that's going to last very much longer.
0: Uh, in the so north... Derek- before we move to the north i've got a couple of questions one it seems like regardless of how the war in the north proceeds that it's likely that crimea and the donbass is going to be under russian rule going forward or at least significant russian influence that seems to be almost inevitable is that the wrong reading of the situation
1: no i mean i the donbass the final status of the donbass may still be up in the air crimea I mean, Crimea is Russian. Uh, I, I understand that there's there's no appetite to recognize that internationally because it would sort of ratify uh, changing borders by force, which is something ostensibly we're not supposed to be doing anymore in the post-World War II international order. Um, but but it's Russian. It's it's never going to be Ukrainian again. I, the, the circumstance, I don't want to say never. I shouldn't say never. But the circumstances under which Crimea could, could go back to Ukraine, you, actual Ukrainian control at this point, seems so unlikely that uh, I don't even want to really consider what they could be. So, yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly Crimea. The Donbass is a, a, a bit of a different case. I don't think the Russians have ever been all that interested, frankly, in annexing it. It's a relatively old industrial uh, region that suffers the same sorts of problems that old industrial regions all over the place suffer uh, high poverty and, uh, you know, a lot of infrastructure needs. And I I don't think they've ever wanted to really take that on. But certainly it will be under it will remain under Russian influence. and, And, you know, as maybe one of these sort of pseudo independent statelets like they've carved out in, in Georgia or something else. I mean, it's, it's hard to know at this point because the, you don't know how the war is going to shake out.
0: And, and so just to be clear for listeners who might not be familiar, uh, Derek is talking about cities that are located in southern Ukraine and that are on either the Black Sea or the Sea of Azov. So Derek, maybe you could just give a little context as to why Russia views um, these port cities and access to the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov as crucial to its geostrategic interests.
1: Well, I mean, the the Black Sea empties out onto the Mediterranean, so for the Russian Navy, it's it's absolutely crucial to have a presence in the Black Sea. Uh, It allows them to do things like operate in Syria, where they now have a a much expanded naval base, thanks to their friendship with Bashar al-Assad. And, you know, to project power beyond that, that was one of the reasons why Crimea was so valuable. I mean, there's sort of a, you know, imagined... Russian essence to Crimea that I think, you know, sparks something uh, ideological or emotional or something like that. But from a practical perspective, I mean, Russia's naval base at uh, Sevastopol is is incredibly important to their military functioning. So th- that was one of the reasons why they moved very quickly after 2014 or after the events of 2014 to secure control of Crimea. So, yeah, I mean, any of these other places, it's it works in two ways. I mean, it, it, it gives the Russians... More Black Sea coastline and port cities, uh, that would be important for Russia commercially, potentially militarily. Um, and also, I mean, if they could secure that entire coastline, it would leave Ukraine landlocked and, and basically cripple, uh, in right. many Firmly ways, the Ukrainian the economy, yeah. leaving Ukraine much weakened moving forward.
0: Okay, so uh, now that we got that clear, why don't we move to how the war is proceeding in the north? And then after we do that, I'd be interested in your take on why there appears to be, like you said, you know, this is a tale of two wars. But first, just what's been going on in the north, which is where Kyiv is located?
1: Yeah, so there's more of a holding pattern in the north. I mean, uh, there have been artillery bombardments in uh, Kharkiv and and other cities the, the town of Chernihiv, I think, is is how you pronounce it. Again, I'm, I apologize for if I'm butchering any of these names, but there was a report of a fairly substantial uh, artillery attack or Russian uh, bombardment uh, today, Thursday. Dozens of people killed. Reportedly, again, this is all based on unconfirmed kind of uh, accounts. There's still this very large, very long column, 40 kilometers was the the largest estimate I saw of Russian forces that is slowly advancing toward Kiev, presumably to surround it and invest it. The progress that that column has made, you'll find various accounts of this, the, the sort of more bullish Western accounts are that they're stuck, uh, logistically, they've they've screwed up. That they don't have fuel. They they don't have uh, enough food. That they're they're just kind of stranded on the on these roads and on the way to Kiev. And and uh, there have been reports the Ukrainian military is claiming it's carried out airstrikes on this column, which are conceivable, I guess, because the Russians and it's somewhat hard to explain sent ground forces into Ukraine without first securing control of the airspace so that's conceivable again all a lot of this stuff is unconfirmed so I you know I want I think people should uh, be skeptical about this but then you'll see accounts of you know it's moving it's just making you know maybe slower than uh, expected progress or you know they're they've stopped but it's an intentional pause to wait for resupply and they're going to continue on here any minute now and uh, you know it's it's hard to know uh, I suspect that they have encountered some logistical difficulties the fact that you have this very long kind of sitting duck column uh, of vehicles moving you know over a period of days uh, out in the open to surround Kiev suggests to me that somebody probably screwed up somewhere because that is not an ideal tactical situation in which to find oneself but uh, you know again uh, something that we've said in all of these episodes or in most of these updates that we've done is uh, i don't think things are going as badly for the Russians as you might believe if you were following some of the accounts on, let's say, Twitter, talking about what a disaster this has been and, you know, s- suggesting that the Ukrainians are winning in some sense or, or, are you know, doing anything other than kind of surviving at this point. I think the Russians are continuing to advance. Their military capabilities still dwarf Ukraine's. The longer this goes on, I will say the harder it gets for them. If the intention is to occupy the entire country, let's say, which was Emmanuel Macron's sudden realization after uh, he had a phone call with Vladimir Putin on Thursday. We can talk a little bit about that if you want. If the intention is to occupy the entire country, then they're not off to a very good start. I mean, they've used up or put into play uh, uh, most of their assets at this point. I think they're up to like 80% of the forces they had arrayed around Ukraine or in the country, if not more than that by now. So you start to wear out. I mean, you start to wear things need, ma- you know, vehicles need maintenance, you need food, you need supplies. And, and if you're just sort of grinding your wheels, the longer that goes on, the harder it gets to envision uh, being able to achieve kind of the maximal war aim, if that's really what the Russians have been after.
0: So let's talk a little bit about why the two wars seem to be going differently. What seems to be the difference in Russian capabilities? Um, does it have to do with geography? Does it have to do with forms of resistance? Or is it just that different units happen to be basically performing differently?
1: I mean, some of it's geography. I think that they've had an easier time moving out of Crimea. Um, they've been able to bring naval assets to bear. Crimea is in the south, uh, just to be clear. Right, right. They've been, been able to use naval assets uh, in the Black Sea to kind of contribute to the war effort there. And I, I mean, you know, look, the Ukrainian military only has so much capacity to, to deal with what has been a multi-pronged invasion. And I think they've made the decision or they made the decision to protect Kiev above all else. And so that's where they've been able to make the strongest stand. But these cities in the south, you know, you just can't defend everything uh, in a situation like this. And so I think the resistance that the Russians have encountered in the South has probably been somewhat less than what they've encountered in the North.
0: So with all due caveats to the fog of war, which we've mentioned a bunch of times, is there anything that we know about casualties? Is there anything we know about um, specific targeting of civilians? Or is it really all difficult to uh, figure out?
1: I would hesitate on claims about specific targeting of civilians because that's, that's really you get into like he said, he said basically uh, kinds of accounts. And I think that's problematic. Uh, Casualties are also somewhat of a grab bag. Uh, The UN at this point says it has confirmed uh, 249 civilians killed and 553 injured the un itself acknowledges that these are undercounts those are only the casualties that they've been able to confirm there are probably substantially more than that in terms of the actual number the ukrainian emergency services made a claim On Wednesday, on March 2nd, uh, more than 2,000 civilians killed since the invasion began, which is within the realm of plausibility also, but, you know, again, caveats uh, in terms of whether anybody really has a, a full picture on what's going on certainly apply there. In terms of combatants, that's that's another black hole, as far as I'm concerned. There's there have been claims from the Russian side that they've lost about 500 soldiers so far and have killed almost 3,000 Ukrainian soldiers or Ukrainian fighters, I should say, not just soldiers. Uh, that would include militia and paramilitaries. There have been claims from the Ukrainian side that that they've killed. You know, four to five thousand Russian personnel at this point, combatants. I think, you know, again, these are numbers that are not outside the realm of possibility, uh, but they're they're coming from sources that have an, an incentive to exaggerate in either direction, uh, and are, I think, unconfirmable regardless. Even if you uh, are inclined to believe one or the other, it's it's impossible to uh, prove it. To any any degree of certainty
0: so um, refugee numbers still uh, seem to be more reliable because they're tracked so directly by the United Nations, and last I checked, it seems like there's been about uh, one million uh, Ukrainian refugees um, out of a country that has a population of around forty four million, so you know roughly uh, one in forty four people have fled Ukraine. So could you give us any updates about the refugee status, how other countries are reacting to it? Is, is there still sort of the racist elements of accepting certain refugees, but people from um, Africa or people from India aren't being accepted? What's the latest update on that?
1: I mean, that's certainly a factor. I, I uh, That was a big story earlier this week, the last day or so. I haven't seen any uh, major stories of of new incidents of, you know, kind of people of African descent or Asian descent being turned away. But I mean, I'm sure it's still a factor. I mean, the last update was late Wednesday, the UN updated, late Wednesday, I should say, in the U.S., the U.N. updated to say uh, the, the number of refugees had gone over a million. That, that number also, though, even though the, the U.N. does uh, register try, or try to register people as they leave Ukraine to keep track of them, that also elides what I'm sure is a much larger number of internally displaced Ukrainians who are just as unsettled in many ways as the people who have managed to get out of the country, and many of them are probably trying to get out of the country. So even the, the number of displaced, I think you have to add the caveat that the ones we know about are only a portion of the total.
0: So why don't we go to Russia and what appears to be the Russian domestic reaction? What has Putin said? What have the uh, so-called oligarchs said? How has the Russian population appeared to have responded? Very early on, there were some anti-war protests. But as we talked about, Putin has taken a very, very strict hand toward anti-war sentiment. So are there any updates on any of that? So basically the elites and the public and their response?
1: I haven't seen any updates on the public response. I think the protests have sort of died down. The media environment has has gotten, it sounds like, more restrictive. Uh, Russian authorities have really clamped down on TV and radio channels that aren't sort of broadcasting the government position here. I think there have been a stream of of oligarchs, quote-unquote oligarchs, Saying publicly, at least, calling for an end to the conflict, and you know, urging Putin and uh, et al to kind of step down here, stand down a little bit, but there's no there's no evidence that that's having any effect. Putin just today on Thursday made some public comments, and I haven't really looked closely at them yet, but uh, seeming to indicate that everything was going to plan, which kind of strikes me as the that. Leslie Nielsen meme from the Naked Gun movie where he's standing out in front of the fireworks. Shop that's exploding and telling everybody nothing to see here. Everything's fine. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, he says everything's going to plan. Who knows? Again, I think it's likely that it, it hasn't gone to plan, but that, that happens in, in war. So, you know, he's at least trying to put on a, a, a good face about it. He did uh, have, as I mentioned earlier, uh, another phone call. There have been three of them now between Putin and Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, since the invasion started. Macron came away from this one, it sounds like, he, uh, pretty shook up, saying that he believes the worst is yet to come. That's a quote from the French government in Ukraine, and, and that Putin's intention is to entirely fully occupy all of Ukraine, that he's not going to stop, or he has no intention of stopping uh, until he Don't, achieves
0: that. Before we continue, is that possible? Because I've read basically everything uh, I, that that's uh, not I have my possible. doubts. Yeah, I have my
1: doubts, especially now. Again, if the first phase of this had worked in the way that I think that most people seem to think uh, it was intended, these sort of quick attacks on Kyiv and, and other places, had actually worked to, to plan, then maybe, maybe you have a chance. But it's, it's taken so much just to get to where they are now and it's going to take that much more to occupy these cities, what it, you know, assuming that they do eventually fall into Russian hands. Uh, I just don't see it. I mean, part of the reason why, like days after you were hearing reports like they've only committed 50 percent, they've only committed two thirds of uh, the forces that they had arrayed is because you're saving the other ones for when you hold Kiev, you can send the, you know, these new forces in either to occupy the city and so your, your frontline troops can move on or so they can leapfrog and keep going. And, and they've sort of had to to put all their chips in fairly early on, I think. And that uh, I have my doubts that they could actually do this. But nevertheless, if that's still his goal, uh, that suggests, you know, obviously you're in for a very long conflict to come with all the effects that that's going to have on the combatants and the Ukrainian people. I mean, if there's a, a silver lining here, it's that Macron's readout on every call he's had with Putin over the last couple of months has turned out to be wrong. So uh, maybe this one will be wrong, too, but I don't know. I have my doubts.
0: And so what has the Western response been? So last time we talked, there were pretty significant economic sanctions, not only against Putin, but against Russia writ large. Uh, what has happened since then?
1: Yeah, we should note before I get into the Western response that there was a second round of talks between Ukrainian and Russian representatives in Belarus on Thursday. The first round was earlier this week. They only The only thing they agreed was to do it again which for a first round of talks, you sort of expect that. This time around, they seem to have come to some agreement on opening humanitarian corridors uh, that would allow Ukrainians that are trying, who are trying to flee the active combat zones, to do so through protected channels that the Russians would agree not to bombard or to to attack. Which is a positive development. It's not very much progress, but you know this is like rocking a vending machine. You know, if you want to tip it over sometimes that's the way this process works. You get a little bit of an agreement on a, a relatively small thing, and then you come back and you kind of build from, from that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not obviously fast enough for the people who are suffering from the war, but, you know, it's not nothing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. The Western response, um, really since the weekend, and we've already kind of covered the swift cutoff and the effort to freeze whatever portion of Russia's Foreign currency reserves were overseas. I think three hundred some billion of the six hundred forty billion they have amassed. What's really been happening this week, for the most part, has been the implementation of sanctions that were already announced. So you've got Western governments kind of looking around for assets that belong to these oligarchs that they blacklisted that can be frozen. Uh, you've got the EU. I think just yesterday on Wednesday. Uh, released its list of the first seven Russian banks to be cut off from SWIFT. So there's sort of like, we're in an implementation phase, we're in a sort of consolidation phase, let's say. And there are probably new sanctions being drawn up. There's certainly, you know, new names of people to add to the already existing sanctions blacklists. But I I, I think two things. One is they're working to implement the sanctions they've already done. And two is they're, they're waiting to see what effect those sanctions have before moving to escalate them in a major way. There have been little things here and there. the, The US instituted export controls covering technology that could be used by Russian oil refineries um, and and one of the other things uh, that's happened this week is Belarus is, has been on the receiving end of some of these sanctions so things that are already were already in place to punish Russia have been extended to Belarus uh, given that that Belarus has allowed the Russian military to stage part of the invasion from its territory and that there are uh, probably reasonable um, expectations that the Belarusian military Military itself is going to get involved in this conflict before too long, that they're going to send forces in to Ukraine to uh, kind of backstop the Russians. Uh, So there, there have been a lot of major new developments on the sanctions front. There have been some developments in terms of Western companies divesting investments, a lot of oil companies, energy companies divesting investments in Russia. Other companies like Visa and MasterCard, for example, you know, refusing to do business anymore in Russia. Uh, I think the latest one was a company called Sabre, which handles like ticketing services for a lot of the world's major airlines, uh, has cut off Aerofloat, which is uh, Russia's main airline. So, you know, they're not going to be able to run their usual ticketing system. Uh, anymore to to sell flights. A lot of countries. I think every EU member, Canada. I think the US at this point, although they might not have officially announced this, have barred Russian aircraft from their airspace. Anyway. So if you're an air traveler in Russia, basically, if you're a Russian citizen, you're going to be massively inconvenienced, even if you, uh, as you're waiting in line to get your, your money out of the bank so that you don't lose it to sanctions, uh, you're also going to be massively inconvenienced if you wanted to fly anywhere, if you wanted to, say, uh, buy an Apple product, because Apple's one of the other companies that's announced it's not doing business in Russia anymore. Uh, so a lot of things that are going to hit, you know, sort of ordinary Russians are coming into play.
0: So, Derek, question. Why do you think these companies are doing it? Do you think they just want to be part of the international response that's anti-invasion of Ukraine? Do you think this suggests that the companies weren't doing so well in the region? Do you think that this indicates that it's not central to their bottom line, or is this just a moral choice that various multinational corporations are making?
1: You know, these companies are essentially amoral. I think that there's a PR (laughs) victory here for them. I think that there are considerations about Getting out ahead of sanctions. If there's going to be a san- you know, you're going to be more sanctions that could impact uh, their business or uh, on the flip side, if, if the Russian government starts doing things like asset freezes, they've talked about implementing some measures to prevent Western companies from divesting their Russian operations. I don't exactly know how that would work. As my bank account can attest, I'm not a high finance guy. So I think there's some need or some desire to get out ahead of potential future problems that they may have and if they can do that while getting the pr win and you know for some of these companies certainly you could argue that and i don't know the bottom line for any of them but you could hypothesize that russia probably isn't central to their business so it's uh, it's a loss but maybe not a, a major one one that they're prepared to write off for these other gains
0: before we move on apparently there's been a little bit of breaking news since we recorded uh uh, apparently the U.S. military has established a communications hotline with uh, Russian military forces so that there won't be an accidental clash, which reminds us, as we talked about earlier in an earlier episode, about what occurred in Syria. So that's interesting. And also, apparently, Ukraine and Russia have tentatively agreed to safe corridors, allowing for evacuation of citizens and humanitarian aid. So a little bit of development on that front. Derek, any reactions to those? Or do you want uh, to move well, on? Well, I did, I have I did mention
1: the humanitarian corridors, but the U.S.-Russia thing is interesting. Um, it, it is akin to the relationship that they've had in in Syria, where they kind of you know try to just stay a uh, I don't I don't know what it's supposed to cover necessarily, because of course the United States isn't supposed to be in Ukraine the way that it was in Syria. That's a little actually a little ominous to me. But I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's dealing with kind of refugee operations or these NATO forces that have been deployed to Eastern Europe and just making sure everybody stays out of everybody's way. I know there was an incident Wednesday, the Swedish defense ministry said like four Russian planes crossed in briefly into Swedish airspace as they were flying over the Baltic sea, which, which is, you know, potentially troubling in a situation like this. So maybe it's just to cover that sort of accidental spillover type of thing but uh, yeah I, I I don't have any reaction beyond
0: that So why don't we move then to uh, security assistance? So what has been the tenor of Western security assistance to Ukraine? Um, What money has been sent? What weapons have been sent? And this might be an ignorant question, but who exactly have they been sent to? Because there seems to be a divide between the official formal Ukrainian military and also militia forces, and also if there is, um, you know, a further invasion of cities, you know, uh, insurgent forces against Russian occupiers.
1: Right. So there's been a steady stream of weapons. There was just, uh, I mean, over the weekend, I, I think we've already mentioned this, the Biden administration allocated another $350 million uh, to send weapons to Ukraine. Biden is reportedly asking Congress to allocate $10 billion, which would go, uh, I'm not sure the mix. And frankly, I would, I would be very interested to see the mix, uh, but supposedly uh, divvied up between weapons and humanitarian assistance. Most of these things have been of the, the types of weapons that could be used by an insurgency, that could also be used by an active duty military, don't get me wrong, but but could be used by an insurgency. Things like portable air defense systems, portable anti-tank systems. So, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff that's coming in could be used either way, which I'm sure is intentional with the thinking that this is probably going to become an insurgency that the West would like to support. Uh, in the grand tradition of supporting proxy wars uh, all over the world. So that's basically I, I, there there haven't been any major new developments as I said. Biden is asking Congress for 10 billion dollars that would be a, a huge allocation of resources. And again, I'd, I'd like to know how much of that is earmarked for weapons. But, you know, it's sort of still this relatively steady trickle of, you know, 20 million here from from one NATO member, 10 million from from another NATO member kind of, you know, making their way in. There was a flurry of uh, speculation earlier this week that the EU was going to finance the acquisition of more aircraft, more fighter aircraft for Ukraine from probably, you know, countries like Poland, I think they asked Poland and Bulgaria, basically former Warsaw Pact countries whose militaries still fly aircraft that would be relatively recognizable to Ukrainian pilots. And that busted out pretty quickly. Uh, It sounds like the EU may have made some intimations to the Ukrainians that they could provide them with additional aircraft. And then they then only after that approached these member states and said, uh, you know, can you pony up some aircraft? And, and they all said no. So that hasn't gone anywhere, although I guess it's still something that people are talking about. But uh, th- that that's seems like it busted out. The other aspect of air power in in you know this this day and age is drones. Ukraine has been buying drones, Bayraktar drones from Turkey, which are seem to be very effective. They've been used in Libya. They were used by Azerbaijan in the like Karabakh conflict yeah. to great effect. Um, they're relatively inexpensive, so they can be deployed in. Fairly large numbers, and if they, you know, if one gets shot down, it's not the end of the world. So, you know, the Ukrainians seem to be using these to somewhat of a level of effectiveness against Russian forces, and they're continuing to supply them, even though Turkey uh, has, of course, a very complicated role here. Is uh, it has good relations with both countries, and, and certainly doesn't want to imperil its relationship with Russia in support of Ukraine. So the Turks have been kind of trying to stress that these are weapons purchases. They're not providing the drones free of charge as aid. It's a purely kind of private transaction between the Ukrainian government and Turkish arms producers or arms manufacturers to sort of, you know, ease the blow. But they're, they're still getting those, which seem to be, you know, playing a, a, a role here in kind of stunting the Russian advance in some places.
0: Well, Derek, that was a, a very comprehensive overview. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, or should we just end it now?
1: Yeah, I think the the one thing I would stress here, and we've already talked about the uh, sanctions and the impact that is falling on Russians, I, I, I still am waiting for somebody in the West, some political power to explain what it is that Russia would have to do to get these sanctions lifted. There's a couple of reasons why I, I mention this. One is that if your hope is that you're going to immiserate the Russian people to the point where they pressure their government to stop the war, that could really boomerang. I mean, you're in the realm now of affecting people's day-to-day lives and livelihoods, and it's just as easy to imagine them developing a, you know, a greater sense of resentment toward the West for making their lives worse. And it would be like a rally around the flag sort of effect. So I think it's important to make it very clear that these are not permanent, that they are in response to things that the Russian government has done and that there are ways that the Russian government could could act here that would get these sanctions lifted. The other factor, you know, has to do with what kind of incentive you're creating for the Russian government. And if you don't offer an off-ramp here if you don't offer a way out of the present situation if you're your position now as i have seen some people argue and i mean this is you know i'm i guess i'm not picking social media here but you know i've seen the argument made that these sanctions should just be on here until vladimir putin goes until there's regime change then you, you're you're not giving the russians any incentive to stop, uh, you're, you're in fact giving them the opposite incentive to keep going because, you know, if there's no way to get out from under these sanctions, why bother? So I think it's, it's very important that, that the West, uh, contrary to the way it's managed sanctions with respect to Iran and Venezuela and North Korea, I think it's very important to create clear guidelines for what, what has to come next to see these sanctions lifted.
0: Well, Derek, thank you as always for your incredible work, uh, and thank you everyone to listening to American Prestige, and we'll continue to update uh, you on how the war proceeds in the coming days, weeks, and months. Thanks, Derek.
1: Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Danny. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it.